Well, as you return to your seats, if you would, take your Bibles and open with me to Luke chapter 1. Last week we began a series, uh, I think, in which we'll eventually work our way all the way through the Gospel of Luke, but we're just looking at the first seven chapters to start out. So a series of 13 messages through these first seven chapters, and today uh, we're in the second of those 13 messages, and our text is Luke chapter 1, verse 26 through verse 38, which if you have one of the Red Bibles, Luke 1, 26 is on page 855. 855. And if you're able, I want to invite you one more time to stand so that we might honor the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Luke chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 26, read through verse 38, hear the reading of God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, we are now looking at your word, and we believe that is exactly that. These are your words. So would you open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds. We want to see clearly your word, to be able to hear it, to understand it, to love it, obey it. We know that the greatest commandment that you've given us is that we love you, the Lord our God, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So would you enable us through the means of your word being upheld and preached today to love you more because of what we see in this text. We pray this for our good and for the honor of Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In Matthew 16, verse 15, Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them, who do you say that I am? Now, that was a question, actually, that in the first century apparently was being asked by a lot of people and answered by a lot of people. The disciples informed Jesus 
in the midst of that questioning that some of those outside of them says that Jesus is John the Baptist. John had, had just a bit ago been beheaded. Some reason, for some reason, that this may have been John now having come back to life and walked among them. Others reason that Jesus was the prophet Elijah. Elijah in the Old Testament had had been taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. Some assumed apparently that now Elijah had returned, and that's who Jesus was. Still others were suggesting that Jesus was Jeremiah, or maybe one of the other prophets. I'm not sure why. But just as there's really not a lot of logic to the many varied and confused answers that people were giving in the first century, so if we were to ask that question in our own day, who is Jesus you would get as many varied and confusing answers. In our own day, some have said that Jesus, Riley made reference to this earlier in our Sunday school lesson, some have, have referenced uh, Jesus simply as being a moral teacher. Many in our society will reference Jesus from a position where individuals are arguing for their own sin. We'll point to Jesus as someone who was a, a moral teacher or the like, but nothing more. Others will say that Jesus was a, one of the prophets who came along and, and then thought for sure that, that God would, would bring about the kingdom of God in his lifetime, that, that he would defeat Roman rule. And, and near the end of his life, as this didn't happen, he was confused as he dies on the cross, crying out, my God, my God, why are, have you forsaken me? Some would say this was Jesus, the disillusioned man from Nazareth who didn't understand what God was doing. And that's just a couple of samples of what we might get if we on the street just asked individuals, who is Jesus? Now, as believers, we think that the Bible is God's Word. We think it's the God's Word because the Bible tells us it is God's Word. This is its very claim. It's not something that we bring to the Bible. It's the terms on which the Bible itself demands to be read. More specifically, we might say we believe that God in His sovereignty made it so that though the biblical authors wrote the very things that they wanted to write, wrote down the very words they wanted to write, God was also in that same moment causing them to write the very words He wanted them to write. So that when we say something like Luke says, and then read Luke 1.26, we can just as clearly be saying God says. Because the Bible is God's Word. Consequently, for us as believers, it's less important for us to answer the question, who do people say that Jesus is? And it's more important for us to answer, who does the Bible say Jesus is? And if we're going to ask that question, who does the Bible say Jesus is, it's, we would be hard-pressed to find a text that answers that question for us better than the text we're looking at today. Luke 1, 26 through verse 38 you may have noted this if you were here last week, that Luke 1, 26 through 38 very, reads very similarly in some ways to the narrative that Luke opened his gospel with, Luke 1, 1 through 25. In both of these narratives, the angel Gabriel shows up to someone who is unsuspecting. In 1, 1 through 25, he shows up to Zechariah. Here, he shows up to Mary. 
in both cases, he tells these individuals that they are going to have a son. Zechariah, in his case, Elizabeth, his wife, was barren, but she would conceive and bear a son, and they would have John the Baptist. In Mary's case, he tells her that she is going to give birth to a son who will be named Jesus. In both cases, it's unsuspecting, it's surprising, it's seemingly impossible. Again, Zechariah and Elizabeth are old, and Elizabeth is barren, and yet the angel is telling them God will do the impossible. In Mary's case, she is a virgin. And again, the angel tells her that God will do the impossible. But in as much as these stories are similar, they're also drastically different, aren't they? I mean, on the one case, Gabriel comes to Zechariah, who is a priest in the line of Aaron. So though there are a bunch of priests at this point, he was a very prominent figure. The angel comes to Zechariah the priest in the prominent city of Jerusalem on a day when Zechariah is in the temple, the most important place on the planet, to tell him that he and his wife Elizabeth will bear a son. In our text this morning, the angel Gabriel comes to a woman who is anything but prominent. The only thing we're told of her is that she is a virgin. Nor is she in any prominent city like Jerusalem. She is in Nazareth. A town that, that later one of the disciples will, will mock. I mean, asking, is anything good come out of Nazareth? She is not prominent. She's not in a prominent city. There's nothing spectacular about her. And yet, as God tells Zechariah in the first part of this chapter, your son will prepare a people for the coming of God. Mary is told, your son will be called Son of the Most High. He will be great. And what I think Luke is doing here by putting these two, we might say, similarly framed but starkly different narratives back to back is because he wants us to see, just as we can see these, these differences in the narrative stories themselves, he wants us to see the difference in who Jesus Christ is as compared to John the Baptist, whom we see at first. In other words, Luke 1, 26 through 38 is a text that teaches us who Jesus is. And the reason this is important for us is really two reasons. One, it's important for us because we are told as believers, we are told as individuals, that we come to faith in Christ, we come to salvation, that the means by which our sins are forgiven is that we repent of our sins and place our faith in Jesus Christ. And part of placing our faith in Jesus Christ demands that we believe He is who the Bible says He is. So if that's true, that you and I must believe that Jesus is who the Bible says He is, that's important for us to know who the Bible says Jesus is. Second, you and I are told that the greatest commandment that our God has given us is that we love our Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Consequently, we can say then, we are to love Jesus more than anyone, more than anything. And if that's true, then it is crucial for us to know who He is, who the Bible says He is. And so this morning then, is an opportunity for us to look one more time and see who is it that the Bible says that Jesus is, so that we might worship and love Him as we should. 
This morning, I want to note three uh, elements to the identity of Jesus. If we ask the question, who is Jesus, we can provide minimally these three answers. One, Jesus is the Davidic king. Jesus is the Davidic king. Now, if the phrase Davidic king, and Isaac, if you don't mind, you can put that right on the slide for me. Jesus is the Davidic king. Oh, it's just not in the back. Look at that. See, I was deceived. So I've gotten to a long habit. I used to always turn around and look here, and now I always look back there, but it's not there. So that's a little behind the scenes scenes for you. If you're not familiar with the phrase Davidic king, that's okay because I'm going to explain it to you. I'm going to provide for you a little background to what this term means. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David looks around at what's all around him, and he notices that though he lives in a really nice house, God is dwelling among his people in the tabernacle. Now, tabernacle may seem like a very foreign and fancy name for us, but tabernacle just means tent. And so David's looking, thinking, I live in a really nice house. God is dwelling among us. His presence is manifested among us inside of a tent. So David decides, I'm going to do something nice for God. I'm going to build God a house, meaning the temple. And so he tells Nathan the prophet, I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan says, that sounds great to me. And David says, great. And he's planning on doing it when all of a sudden Nathan actually inquires of the Lord and the Lord tells him, not so fast, Nathan. Go back to David and make clear to David, no, 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 no. You're not going to build me a house. You see, the Bible never puts God in a position in our perspective where we're doing a favor for him. It's never the case. And in case David had that thought in his mind, God puts a stop to it real fast. So Nathan comes back to David and says, not so fast, David. In fact, not only are you not going to do a favor for God, God is going to do a favor for you. God is going to build you a house. Now, he didn't mean that literally. David already had a nice house. He was using a house in a way that we might use pun, a pun meaning a dynasty. God is going to create in David a line of kings who will reign over the throne for generation after generation after generation. Specifically, here's what the Lord says to David. When your days are fulfilled and you walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. Now, now parts of that promise you could see being fulfilled in Solomon, David's immediate son, whom he has with Bathsheba. And it is true, Solomon is David's son. Solomon becomes king in David's place. Solomon does build the temple. But there's also much of this promise that cannot be fulfilled by Solomon. God says, when your days are done, I'm going to raise up your offspring, and he will reign on the throne of my kingdom forever. That's more than Solomon can do. In fact, D.A. Carson has said, and I've noted this many times, there are really one of two ways that this promise to David could be fulfilled. One, it could be 
that David has a son who becomes king, and David's son has a son who becomes king, and that son has a son who becomes king, and so on and so on it goes, world without end. Or, option two, one of David's sons reigns as king and lives forever. And so what happens from the point of 2 Samuel 7 on is the people are looking forward to this promise, this, this, this line of David, this, this one that might come and reign over the throne of God's kingdom, of David's kingdom forever, the son of David. You might say it's a very exciting time and that the people are full of hope, except something happened. After David had Solomon and Solomon has his son, soon the kingdom of Israel divided into two parts, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. In 722, the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by the Babylonians. They're done. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah was destroyed as well. The people were hauled off into exile in Babylon. And all of a sudden, this great throne of David that was supposed to be established and last forever was really brought to nothing. To, to say that you were the, the king in the line of David meant nothing. Because the people had been conquered, they were in exile. You might picture David's line like this. If, if David's line with king after king after king coming from him could be pictured in terms of this great royal tree. In 586 BC, it's like somebody took a chainsaw and they cut that tree down to a stump. Now, that illustration, that image is not unique with me. Isaiah the prophet uses that illustration. In fact, he speaks of this stump of Jesse. Jesse was David's dad. And here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 11.1. 1. When it feels like David's tree, his line had been cut down to a stump, the people are in exile, surely how in the world is God going to have a king who will reign on the throne forever? And it seems hopeless. It seems impossible. Isaiah writes this in Isaiah 11.1. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. I don't know if you've seen this before. A couple of years ago, I had a tree that was right by my house, and the branches were lying on my roof, and I thought, that's not good. So I decided one day I would cut it down. And I did. I cut it down to the stump. It fell down. I cut it all up. I hauled it off. I was done with that tree, right? Until just about a couple months later when I looked down, and there was a shoot right in the middle of that tree growing out. So what I've done since then is I've cut that down again and again and again until it's going to die. But in this case, Isaiah says, just when David's line seems to be cut off, and there's no son of David who's reigning on the throne forever, don't give up hope yet. God will fulfill his promise. And that stump is going to grow a shoot. In other words, Isaiah was saying, oh, this promised son of David is coming. Well, then what happens is after the exile and after they return and all of that, you end the Old Testament and there are 400 years where God is not speaking through the prophets to his people. This is why I said by the time you get to the Gospel of Luke, it can feel like for the people of Israel, they are in the dead of winter. There's, there's no hope. No doubt many have given up on the thought that even the son of David would ever come, that this eternal king would ever arrive. 
And yet when Luke opens his gospel, this is why I said last week, when the angel comes to Zechariah and says to Zechariah, or first, when we read in Luke's gospel, as the angel's coming to Zechariah and we find out that Zechariah's wife is barren, our ears perk up, don't they? Because we go, hold on a second. We know from reading the Old Testament that this is often how miraculous stories happen. It starts with a woman who is barren. And all of a sudden, God's saving activity breaks onto the scene. Well, in the second part of Luke's narrative, when he, when he moves over to the announcement to Mary, note how this text begins, our text this morning. Chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, now by that, Luke means in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy. She had been promised John the Baptist, right? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, again, at this point, we're not that impressed. Nazareth, that's no Jerusalem, right? Continue reading. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name is Joseph. That's the only time Joseph's going to come up in this whole thing. Quickly, easily, we want to dismiss that guy, right? Nothing impressive there until you read the next descriptive phrase of Joseph. To a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Now, all of a sudden, our ears perk up again, don't they? Could, could it be? Could it be that the, that the angel is coming in this moment in history when God's already told us through the first birth announcement, my saving work is going? Could it be that after all these years that God is finally going to raise up one from the line of David to be his eternal king? That's exactly what Luke wants us to see. Look how the story unfolds. In verse 28, we're told that the angel comes and greets Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. In verse 29, we're told that she was troubled, a bit confused by this, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Now, the reason the angel's greeting to Mary would be odd in two ways is, one, it wasn't a common thing for a man to show up, see a woman whom he doesn't know, and begin conversation with her. That alone would be a bit odd, a bit confusing, a bit troubling. And, and two, the, the angel comes and says, greetings, in verse 28, which is just kind of like saying, hi. But then he says, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. And so Mary's thinking, what's going on here? She's afraid. So the angel says to her in verse 30, the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You're going to be the object of God's grace. That's who you are. God is showing you favor. Verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, let's get the descriptive of who Jesus is then, according to verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And now note this. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is what we mean by the Davidic king. Jesus is the king promised in the line of David, the one who would come from David's line, who would be king, who would live forever, who would reign forever, 
Another name for the Davidic king is Messiah or Christ. This is who Jesus is. In fact, now we can understand why many were so confused when Jesus died that Friday on a Roman cross. After all, you can remember in Luke 24, the men on the way to Emmaus were saying to, after Jesus is raised from the dead and he appears to them, they don't know it's Jesus. So they're chatting with him and they say to him, we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Well, why did they stop hoping that? Because he died. If he was going to be the promised son of David who could reign on the throne forever, then necessarily he must live forever, minimally. And Jesus died on that Friday. That's why they had lost hope. That's why it seemed like Jesus could not be the promised son of David, the promised king, the promised Christ, the Messiah. But as Jesus walked out of the tomb alive on that Easter Sunday morning, it all of a sudden was clear. He is the Davidic king. This is why it's a crucial note when Luke begins this narrative saying that Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. You know what Luke does this in Luke 3, but Matthew does it, I think, in a more overt way in Matthew chapter 1. You could say, you could say, because the people of Israel went into exile, and there was really no Davidic king reigning on the throne ultimately, I mean, in this day, they're under Roman tyranny, If there was no Davidic son reigning on the throne, you might say, we really don't know who would have been king from David's line at this point. But you know what Matthew does? When Matthew begins his gospel, he begins his gospel writing the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he traces out this genealogy. And he works his way from David through the exile, and he keeps going until he gets to Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus. It seems to me that Matthew is making the point loud and clear. Had there still been a throne, I'll tell you who the one who would rightfully be sitting on it would be. It would be a carpenter in Nazareth named Joseph. What Matthew, what Luke rather, is telling us here is that Jesus Christ is the promised son of David. He is the one in David's line who God had promised would be my king, who would reign forever, and who would live forever. That king must be from David's line. That's who Jesus is. Now, on that note, I do want to make clear. To be the Davidic king, to be the promised Messiah, you do have to be a man. You have to be a human being. Jesus was nothing less than fully human. And if the Davidic king, who must be fully human, is to live forever and reign forever, then Jesus must be fully human forever. Sometimes I think we might miss this point, that not only did God the Son take on flesh to be born of the virgin, meaning He became a man, but for all of eternity, He remains a man. There is a man reigning over the earth at the right hand of God, Jesus the Christ. This is what we were singing earlier when we sing, Thou hast raised our human nature in the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places. There we, there, there we, uh, there with thee in glory stand. Jesus reigns adorned by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in thine ascension, 
we by faith behold our own. What we're saying there is when we say we behold our own is when we look and we know that there is one reigning at the right hand of God, we're saying, and he is nothing less than a man, a human being, the Davidic king. So that's our first answer to the question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the Davidic king. Second, Jesus is our sinless Savior. Jesus is our sinless Savior. Now, when the angel Gabriel comes and announces to Mary that she's going to have a son, he makes clear that though he is going to be a human being, one from the line of David, he is not going to be a normal human being. He is going to be our sinless Savior. When the angel says to Mary, you're going to have a son, the thing to me that is astonishing is that she doesn't assume he means in the future when Joseph and I get married. Now, Joseph, we are told, and Mary are betrothed. The way betrothal worked is betrothal was a, was a legally binding engagement. And so what you would do is you would become betrothed, and then typically about a year later you would get married. And so I don't know at what point Mary is in her betrothal, but she could be as much as a year away from marriage. Maybe they've been a little bit betrothed each other. Maybe they're nine months away or something like this. But, but, but whatever the time is, it would make sense to me that the angel would say to Mary, you're going to have a son. And she would say, oh, you mean once Joseph and I get married. But that's not what she assumes. And what she assumes is right. She understands that the angel is saying to her, you're going to have a son even though you're a virgin. But Mary's question, of course, is how? We see that in verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? You see, those in the first century weren't any less understanding about where babies come from. She knew that this was impossible. Now, you might say, well, hold on a second. When, when, when Zechariah questioned the angel in verse 18 of Luke 1, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel saw that as unbelief. But we're going to see, when Mary asked the question, how will this be since I'm a virgin, the angel doesn't see it as unbelief. What's the difference? Well, literally, when Zechariah asked the question, he's really asking the question this, on what basis shall I know this? On what account can I know this is true? And, of course, the angel answers, because I'm an angel right? Does this happen to you like a lot, you know? Of course not. Mary's not asking that. She's not asking, on what account can I know this? On what, on what basis can I know this is true? Mary's simply asking, how in the world is this going to happen? I'm a virgin. How am I going to bear a child? The angel answers, verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then he tells her, and if you're impressed with this, let me tell you one other thing you can be impressed with. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The angel says, Mary, the answer to your question is that just as God's doing with Elizabeth, God is going to do the impossible. The Holy Spirit will come and overshadow you. 
What he's saying to her is that your child will be conceived by the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way that's beyond our understanding. God will make this child created in your womb. But what's interesting to this point that we're noting right now is note that the angel says in verse 35, the Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore... Because this child is going to be of miraculous conception, therefore, the child to be born to you will be called holy. In other words, what the angel is saying to Mary is, because your son is not going to be conceived through natural means so that you could trace his line to Adam, he's going to be conceived in miraculous means. Consequently, your child will be called holy. Jesus Christ, born of the virgin, is therefore born into the world, not corrupt from Adam. But he is sinless. When we speak of Jesus, we do not think of Jesus as being one who sinned. We do not think of Jesus as being one who had any inclination to sin or any guilt from sin. Well, why? Part of the reason is because he is born of the virgin. As we testify when we quote the Apostles' Creed together, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and therefore he is holy. No corruption, no guilt, no sin. He is the sinless one, and he is the sinless one who is our Savior. When the angel tells Mary that you will name him in verse 31, you shall call his name Jesus. Jesus is from the Hebrew Joshua, which if you trace its, its roots, its etymology, it means this, uh, the, the, the Lord is salvation. What the angel is saying to Mary is, your son will be sinless and he will be our Savior. This is what Paul draws out in the book of 2 Corinthians saying, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If we were going to be saved, it demanded that we have a sinless Savior. And that's who Jesus is. The one who did not sin bore the punishment for our sin on the cross so that as our representative, as our substitute, he dies on the cross in our place, is buried and is raised from the dead so that any who repent of their sins and place their faith in him are credited with His righteousness even as our sins are paid for. Jesus is the Davidic King, and Jesus is our sinless Savior. And then finally, Jesus is the Son of God. By that, I mean God the Son. Jesus is the Son of God, and by that, I mean God the Son. Now, the reason I put God the Son in parentheses is because I want you to know that what I'm saying here is that Jesus is nothing less than the second person of the Trinity. We confess as believers that there's one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Now, where do we see that in this text? Well, let me note two places where the angel explicitly says Jesus is the Son of God. The first one is in verse 32. The angel says to Mary, He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. That is, Most High is a name given to God. In other words, He will be called the Son of God. And then again, verse 35. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Now, to be fair, somebody could say, that title, Son of God, that title alone doesn't mean you're God. Let me show you why. Just a couple chapters later, in Luke 3.38, Luke will trace Jesus' genealogy, starting with Jesus and working backwards. He'll, he'll trace his genealogy all the way back to Adam. So he'll say, Seth is the son of Adam. Adam is the son of God. Adam is not God. He's merely a man. But he's called the son of God. Not only that, but if you read Exodus chapter 4, remember when God was going to bring Israel out of Egypt? God says to Moses, here's what you are to say to Pharaoh let my son go. In fact, these are the terms. Let my son go, or I'll kill your firstborn son. Pharaoh refuses. God kills his firstborn son. God delivers his, 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 his children out of Egypt. This is why Hosea 11.1 1 reads, Out of Egypt I've called my son. Israel, the son of God, I assure you, look at the way they live. They're not God. They're merely humans. Moreover, when God told David, David, when you die, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you, one who will come from your line, who will reign forever. What, what he specifically says about David's son, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And specifically, the Messiah had to be a human being from David's line. So we might say, it seems that generally, when you see that title, Son of God, it means a human being who is supposed to resemble God in his behavior and reflect God in his reign. This is why Adam was commanded to reign over the earth to resemble God, to walk in holiness. This is why Israel, when they come into the promised land, and, and in the book of Leviticus, they're told multiple times, be holy as I am holy. If you're my son, you need to resemble me. This is why the Davidic kings, David, Solomon, Rehoboam, and on and on and on, all of them should have been resembling God. This is why their sin gross sin again and again and again is such a blight on Israel's history. So if we are to then see that Son of God is a title that could belong clearly to a human being, and specifically if God says of the promised Messiah, David's son, he will be a son to me, we could simply see it as that means no more than that he's human. But if you keep reading your Old Testament, you'll see that the Old Testament doesn't simply say, it does say of the Messiah, he must be a human being. He must be from David's line. It also makes clear he must be God. In Isaiah chapter 7, typically around Christmas time, we read Isaiah 7, we read Isaiah 11. Isaiah 7, 14 is the text that really relates to what we're talking about this morning. In Isaiah 7, 14, God makes a promise through the prophet Isaiah, that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. 
Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son. So that 700 years before Mary is told by the angel Gabriel, you, the virgin, will bear a son who will be called Jesus the Christ. Isaiah had already promised that would come about. In Isaiah 11, I noted earlier that that, that Isaiah was prophesying, though the, the line of Jesse, the line of David, is like a tree cut down to a stump, that tree will begin to grow a shoot right out of it. God's going to deliver his promise. But in the middle of Isaiah 7, In Isaiah 11, which are both talking about this Davidic king to come, we see Isaiah 9. And listen to what Isaiah 9 says about the son of David. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. You probably know the next phrase. Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, we could stop there and say, well, well, okay, yes, yes, yes. Clearly, the one that Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 9, he is God. How do we know he's really talking about David's son, the promised king? We'll keep reading. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Isaiah says about the one who will come from David's line, he will be God. He'll be mighty God. He must be fully human, but he must also be fully God. Not only that, but do you remember Jesus in Matthew 22? Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, and he begins to ask them questions. He says this. He's talking about Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110, verse 1, David's writing that psalm, and David says, he begins that song with this that psalm with this line. The Lord said to my Lord. So Jesus knows the Pharisees know that psalm. And so he asked them a question one day. Hey, what about the Christ? What about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they're like, ooh, 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 you know? Son of David. You know, feeling good about themselves. That's right, that's right. So then Jesus says this. Well, then if he's David's son, which he is, why does David call him his Lord? Writing in Psalm 110, the Lord, God, said to my Lord. The text says the Pharisees shut up, right? They didn't answer him. My guess is one of the things is that they didn't want to answer him. Because if they acknowledged The Old Testament explicitly teaches the Messiah must be a human being, David's son. But he is also David's Lord, nothing less than his God. Then every time they got really upset with Jesus for claiming that he's God, they would have had to have repented, wouldn't they? And they would have had to have bowed the knee and said, you are the one who is promised. But they stopped asking questions. They stop answering Jesus' questions because they don't want to repent. But what Jesus is showing them very clearly is that the Messiah, the Old Testament, yes, teaches he must be a human being, but it also teaches that he will be God because both of those elements are necessary. If Jesus is going to save us, he must be a man because only a man can serve as our representative before God. And on the cross, Jesus does nothing less than serve as our representative. On the cross, he dies for us. 
For those who, who place our faith in Christ, Jesus is our representative. He is our substitute before God. He takes our sins. He undergoes penalty on our behalf. To do that, that must be a man. And yet, only God can save us. And so Jesus is nothing less than the God-man who comes to earth for us and for our salvation. If we then ask this question, who is Jesus? We need to look no further than this announcement that Gabriel the angel makes to Mary. Your son is the Davidic king. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the man who will reign forever. Your son is our sinless Savior. Born of the virgin, he will not be tainted by corruption. He will not be tainted by guilt. He will not be tainted by sin. He will live a sinlessly perfect life. And your son is nothing less than the Son of God. And by that I mean he is God, the Son. Because only God can bring our salvation. What then do we do with this information? If you're not a believer this morning, your response needs to be to bow the knee to Jesus Christ in faith. I mentioned last week a story from Edith Schaefer where she was asked by somebody, why should I become a Christian? Why should I believe in Christianity? And her answer was, because it is true. I'm saying to you, if you're not a believer this morning, God really did send his son to earth. He really did fulfill the promises that he had made. He lived a perfectly sinless life. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered on the cross and died to pay for our sins. God raised him from the dead on the third day. Right now, he is reigning from God's right hand, and he will reign forever. But one day, he's going to come and judge his enemies and save his people. And what I'm telling you is if you're not a believer, when that day comes, if you have not repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you will suffer the merciless wrath of God. Jesus Christ, the reigning king, will come and judge his enemies. In fact, Psalm 2, which speaks of this great Davidic king, Jesus Christ, says to us, Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in His way. The Bible does not pull punches on Jesus' wrath. You will bow the knee to Him and you will be saved by the Lamb of God or you will on that day suffer the wrath of the Lamb. So what I'm telling you this morning is if you're not a believer, you don't have to suffer the wrath of the Lamb. You can lay down your arms, lay down your sin, repent of them, and place your faith in Jesus Christ, believing that He is who the Bible says He is. Trust in Him, trust in His death, trust in His resurrection, trust in His sinless life as your only hope for salvation, and you can be saved. There's nothing magical you have to do to, to walk the aisle at a certain time or to say a prayer a certain way. You are called to repent of your sins and believe. And if you want to talk to me or somebody else after the service, we would love to talk to you. And you might say this, well, if I believe, how then do I make that public? Because if I believe, that, that's something that happens inside of me. Jesus gives an answer for that. The way that you make that public 
is by being immersed in water. The action is called baptism. You're, you're immersed in water and brought back up again to show that by faith you've been united with the one who was alive and died and was buried and then rose from the dead. And that's what you'll be showing forth in the act of baptism. So if you're not a believer this morning, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Christ. Again, if you want to talk to me after the service, come talk to me. If you want to talk to the person sitting beside you, I'm certainly want to talk to you. If you are a believer, I just want to say the same thing. Just as we can say, why should I hold to Christianity? And the answer is, because it's true. Then if it's true, then doesn't it make sense that if you and I testify that we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that we would orient our entire lives around honoring and glorifying Him, that we would fight sin and turn from it, that we would orient our lives to gather with the saints on the Lord's day and worship Him, that we would seek to do whatever we do to the glory of God and love Him. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus really is who He says He is, then He must be the object of the devotion of our lives. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to respond to this text by coming to the table. Just as an individual makes clear that we placed our faith in Christ by being baptized, being immersed and brought up out of the water, show, so we show that we are continuing to trust Christ by coming to the table. The way we're going to come to the table this morning is we're going to have a moment of silence. The band will come forward. Another pastor will get in place. There will be a pastor in an overflow area over here to my left. And then after a time of silence, I'll pray. And then we'll come forward, row by row, each row exiting to the outside and coming around and getting a serving and then entering back into the row to the inside, second row following, third, and so on and so forth. There will be two cups that are stacked together. You'll just grab one stack of two cups, the bread on the bottom, the juice on the top. You'll take that, return to your seat. We'll then eat together, and then we'll drink together. And as we do that, we will all be, all of us who have faith in Christ, will be publicly confessing, we believe Jesus is who the Bible says He is, and our hope of salvation we've placed solely in Him. So let's take a moment of silence now as we prepare to come to the table this morning.